From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and this episode is going to be a very special episode in that sense that we used to say about 70s sitcoms. This episode is going to cross-fertilize with something that I wrote recently in a very different venue, and specifically, that was about war and peace, of all things. During the pandemic, I decided that I would finally tackle that 1,200-page book, because, of course, we often didn't have much else to do, and I actually did it bit by bit by bit, and I found that I didn't enjoy it as much as I would like to have, and I've enjoyed a Russian novel or two or three in my day, but this time I was not having the proper experience. And after a while, I started to realize it's not what's going on, it's the translation. I was reading, as many people do these days, the translation by Richard Pevere and Larissa Volchansky. I'm going to call it P&V from now on. And I found that they have a philosophy of translation that I would have to say is not mine. They're trying to stay as close to the original text as possible. But the problem with that is that when you do it, what comes out is not English, or at least often not graceful English. And even if you want to say that it's not graceful, but it has a different flavor, I would have to question whether sometimes it's exactly even artistic. In any case, this is not going to be a spoken version of that piece that I wrote. What I found interesting is that a lot of my points about what didn't go for me in the PNV translation are actually useful linguistics lessons. And so I want to share with you just a few of the things that rubbed me the wrong way about the translation, although they might not rub all people the wrong way. And what this can serve as is, in part, a translation show. An awful lot of you have asked me to do a show on translation, and that's one thing that I have never actually attended to, partly because linguistics and translation intersect only slightly, and I'm not trained in translation or translation theory. Nevertheless, this will be an episode about translation issues after a fashion, and I hope that this will at least help scratch that itch that some of you have. Please do take it as my offering on that score. The Pavir and Volochansky, War and Peace and What It Can Teach Us, just about how language works. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. So, for one thing, there's something about self and the word even. What in the world would that even be? Well, I'm going to talk about one page in this episode. It's just one page. It's in Volume 1, Part 2, Chapter 21. Damn, this is a long book. But it's just one page where it's not Natasha and the gang. This is grubby soldiers sitting around waiting for things to happen. It's cold, they're dirty, and they're being guys. And yet, although that sounds pretty interesting in itself, it never quite comes up from the page. And I think it's because of the way it's rendered in this translation. So, for example, soldier wanders in from somewhere else. And P&V have him saying, I strayed from my company, Your Honor. I don't know where myself. 
Now, right there, it's English, but I've strayed from my company, Your Honor. I don't know where myself. Who self? Why is he saying myself? Who else would know? If maybe he's thinking that the soldiers who he strayed from way over miles away would know where it happened, why would he be mentioning that to these soldiers who don't even know the other ones where he's in a completely different setting? I don't even know where myself. No, it's it's not idiomatic. It doesn't sound like something someone would say. Now, ordinarily, you just keep reading. But I think here, P and V are neglecting that the word that Tolstoy used doesn't have to only mean self. He says, Sam Niznayu. Niznayu is I don't know. Then there's Sam. So they have it as myself, I don't know. But Sam also means in Russian, even. So imagine this soldier comes in and he says, I strayed from my company, Your Honor. I don't even know where. See, that's how somebody talks. It's not only about English, it, it makes sense within the context. And it fits into Tolstoy's larger goal in the whole book of discussing how pointless war is, how random war is, how it's not as tidy and motivated as it ends up looking in books later. So here's this guy, I don't even know where. That's what Tolstoy meant. The psalm is even. Now, if you're sitting here and translating, you might think, you know, and your Russian could be native and or very good, but you might think, okay, psalm self, because that's the first definition of it that you would see in a dictionary and that you would see in your head. And so myself, I don't know. But the thing is, self also means even. It might not occur to you because self and even seem so different, but in a way they aren't. Because if you think about it, that usage of self such as, and here comes the king himself, or I don't even know, myself. That's an intensifier. It's making it stronger. And even is the same kind of thing. So for example, if you say, he even has another horse. What that means is not only does he have a pig and a cow, but also another horse. Whoa, uh, it's an intensifier. So they're intensifying meanings between both self and even, and even can evolve ooch by ooch by ooch from self. That's certainly what happened in Russian. And nevertheless, I'm saying this and it may feel kind of forced, but actually it's kind of typical. It's something that happens in languages all the time as elements' meanings change bit by bit by bit because of things they have in common, such that even though there was something in common that this change was happening on the basis of, when you are on the other end of the change, when you're at B rather than A, it can be almost bizarre to look at where A was. So for example, something many of you may already have actually thought of. Think about French with the word mem. Mem, the first thing you think of it meaning, is either same or self. So moi-même, myself, moi-même. But then if you've taken French for longer than a couple years, you know that mem also means, as you actually speak the language, it means even. So, for example, something like mem le bébé, even the baby. I don't know why that's something. Like, well, even the babies French, even the babies speak French, and so mem le bébé, il parle français. So, even the babies. Now, mem le bébé doesn't mean himself, the baby. It means even the baby. Now, you might think, well, that's just French and Russian, and well, you know, hoity-toity Russians used to speak French, such as they do often in War and Peace, which is another thing that makes the book hard to read. And so you're thinking, well, maybe French and Russian influenced each other. But first of all, think about the geography, and then, more to the point, it's not just those two. It's in, for example, a language quite unconnected to either of them, Irish. Irish has a word, fain. Fain means both self, and if you kind of 
probe somebody on it. It also means even. And you know, the funniest thing about that is that that Irish even had an effect that you would never expect. Talk about how you wouldn't expect even to be coming from self. There is, in most of the English-based Creole languages of the Caribbean, and then by extension to West Africa that I devoted that episode to not too long ago, in them, there is a usage of self as even. So remember, I talked about how there was a Creole that probably formed in Barbados and then was taken to South Carolina and Jamaica and Suriname and then also back across the Atlantic Ocean and is now the basis of Nigerian pidgin, Cameroonian pidgin, that language that now is spoken all over the world practically. Well, in all of the varieties of that language except a few, you have this same thing. So in Jamaican, it talk about having another horse. In Jamaican patois, if you want to say, he even has another horse. Well, another is next. And so one next, one next horse. So he even has another horse. Imha one next house. That's he has another horse. Imha one next house self. That doesn't mean he has another horse itself. It means he even has another horse. That's the way you say it. Imha one next house self. Or in, say, Nigerian pigeon, there is a poem. And one line of the poem is, How I go take think amsef. Notice how these are languages where most of the words are English, and yet you have to approach it often as a completely different language. How I go take thinkum, Sif. Now, that's how I go take thinkum. That's how am I going to think about it. Um is from him, but it's also used for her and it. How am I going to think about it? How I go take thinkum, and then Sif. Now, it doesn't mean how am I going to think about it, self, or how am I going to think about it, myself. No, it means even. How am I even going to think about it? The way you say that Nigerian pigeon is not, how am I even going to think about it? But how I go take think Seth? That's how you do it. Why is this? Why do they have that? They have it because there were a lot of white people who were brought to these same places that slaves were transported, especially early on, 1600s, early 1700s. And they were brought often to work alongside the slaves. These were people who were practically slaves themselves in terms of how their lives worked. Remember the indentured servants that you sometimes learn about or don't learn about in school? Well, a lot of those people were Irish. And especially early on, a lot of those people were ones who spoke Irish as their primary language and English as just a second language. In their Irish, because they have this fane that means both self and even, they would use self in their English in the same way. And of all things, that became part of how black people learned to speak English. And as a result, because of those Irish servants, you have people using self as even today in Nigeria and Cameroon. It's really a very interesting thing. And, you know, it's time for a clip, and I've got one that is just perfect. This is a Tom Lehrer song. And you may have noticed I haven't used those on this show. You would think that me with the show tunes, I'd be playing masochism tango and all those songs. I didn't grow up with those. They didn't permeate my consciousness the way you would expect. But here is one. This is one of the lesser-known ones. It's called Lobachevsky, and it's a Russian parody. And listen to Lehrer here when he sings two bits of Russian. There's the first one. Then there's the second one. It's not gibberish. This is actual Russian. Listen. I am never forget the day my first book is published. Every chapter I stole from somewhere else. Index I copy from old Vladivostok telephone directory. This book was sensational. Pravda. Well, Pravda says, it stinks. 
but Izvestia. Izvestia said, Yai dukutasam tsaridyot pieshkom. It stinks. Metro Gold in Moskva buys the movie rights for six million rubles, changing title to The Eternal Triangle, with Ingrid Bergman playing part of Hypotenuse. And who deserves the credit? And who deserves the blame? Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky is his name. So, Yaidukuda Samtsaridyot Pishkom. Now, what that is, is Yaidukuda, I'm going where? And then Samtsaridyot Pishkom. Even the Tsar goes on foot. So, I'm going where even the Tsar goes on foot. That means to the bathroom. The idea being that you can't, you know, carry the Tsar on his litter into the bathroom. Now, notice, I am going. Yaidu kuda where some tsaridyot pishkom. It couldn't mean I'm going where the tsar goes on foot himself. No, that 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 doesn't make any sense. It's even the tsar because otherwise he gets carried around. So that's a perfect example of how sam is used in Russian to mean even in a living example, and that's the usage that Tolstoy meant as well. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now, Elsewhere, on just this page, P and V have a couple of soldiers doing what they describe as pulling some boot from each other. <laughs> That's what it is, pulling some boot from each other. Now, try to picture what they're doing. Now, what's interesting is that in another translation that's quite famed by a couple named the Mauds, the way they have it is each trying to snatch from the other a boot they were both holding on to. Notice that suddenly that's alive, that, that's people each trying to snatch from the other a boot they were both holding on to. P and V have pulling some boot from each other. Now, what, what happened here? Well, they are trying to make it sound as much like the Russian as possible, and the Russian has pulling from each other some boot. Except actually, because of how Russian works, what it really is, is that the from, instead of being a preposition, is a prefix that's attached to the front of the pulling. So what you say technically in Russian is from pulling each other some boot. Now, why does that matter? Because there is something about Russian grammar that is very persnickety, and it does something to verbs when you put that kind of prefix on them, a prefix that often is something that we would think of as a preposition. And what it is, is that if you just say pull, then that means that you're doing something continuous, like you're, you're pulling a, a car that's stuck in the mud, and you're pulling on it and pulling on it, and eventually it comes out, or maybe it doesn't. But as soon as you put that from pulling, so from pulling each other some boot, from pulling makes it something that's abrupt, that's right now, that's not continuous. In other words, once you stick that from on, it becomes a word snatch, as in yank, as opposed to hauling over a long time. This is not just about Russian. This is a linguistics thing. This is what's called aspect. 
aspect is kind of a lousy thing to call it because, you know, aspect, it sounds like all of life, you know, all of life is aspects of different things, of course. But aspect is actually something that a language plays off against something we're much more familiar with, which is tense. So we think, well, a language's verbs are all about being in the present or before the present in the past or after the present in the future. And that is true. But equally important in language is a different parameter, which is whether something is continuous, like, or whether something is more abrupt, like, so is it, or is it, or to use more technical terms than those two, is it continuous or is it punctual? So aspect is about that, because if you think about it, human experience is about that difference to a considerable extent. Things that are kind of just going along versus things that just fall from the sky. Isn't that, you know, the essence of life? And you you are probably, if you're listening to this show, more familiar with that than you think. It's just that we aren't told what it is in a generic sense. Think about in French and Spanish, where what it feels like to us is there are two past tenses. There's the imperfect and then the preterite. They're not two past tenses. The preterite is a tense. The imperfect is about aspect. So, for example, in Spanish, if you want to say, the students were studying when the bell rang. That's one of those things. It's, and then, or the students were studying is in the imperfect, and then the bell rang, and that's in the preterite. So, Spanish, los estudiantes estudiaban. That's imperfect. Cuando, when the bell rang, sonó la campana, and so rang the bell, the bell rang, sonó, that is in the preterite. And so imperfect and preterite, those are taught with examples like that. What that is, is that imperfect is continuous aspect. The preterite marks the past tense in the strict way. The distinction between those two kinds of events is the continuous versus the punctual. And if you're looking at other languages, there are all sorts of ways that aspect makes things make sense to you that otherwise seem kind of odd. And so, for example, if you learn Mandarin, you might learn, if you're taught it badly, that there's a past tense marker, l. And so, that's I walk, and you can put l. And that could be I walked. And so you think, okay, well, then it means that this la is kind of like sticking ed on the end of a verb in English. But no, it doesn't work that way because you find that this la is used in cases where it's really quite present. And so then everybody starts talking about how confusing la is. And so, for example, let's say you're on the phone with somebody with whom you are intimately involved and the two of you are talking about this and that and then one of you mentions something that's very dear to the two of you something you shared and then you say oh, i miss you now something changed oh, i miss you now as opposed to before when you were just talking about doing your taxes or something like that i miss you now the way you would say that in mandarin is i miss you just basically is ni, okay but to say that Oh, now I miss you is right there. Now, the reason that you can say, well, I walked and now I miss you. The reason that you can use in both of those cases is because of what they share, which is that something changed. It's a change of state. Things were one way and now they're another. That's another aspect of aspect, the aspect of things as opposed to just whether something is present, past, or future, which is narrower in many ways. And so aspect is that central. 
to existence. And the truth is, if you look at languages around the world, there's some that don't have tense but do have aspect. It's been argued that Mandarin is one of those. I am not aware of a language that has tense but no aspect. I'm pretty sure that doesn't exist. Now, there are some languages that don't mark tense or aspect regularly at all. It's a weird thing. I'm aware of a few of those on the western half of New Guinea. Neither one. But if you're going to have just one, it's going to be the aspect. It's not going to be just the tense. Aspect is arguably more fundamental to existence than marking present, future, past. And so here where we have pulling some boot from each other. The problem is that P and V aren't paying as much attention as at least I would to the aspect, because once it's from pulling each other some boot, you have to make the pulling into something punctual. And that means in this language called English that it's a different word. It's snatch. It's yank. It's not just pull. And that's why pulling some boot from each other sounds a little passive. It sounds like they're doing it underwater or that they're on some kind of drug or something, because really what they're doing is yanking a song at this point. This is from Steely Dan's comeback album in the year 2000. They hadn't done one in about 20 years. Donald Fagan had done albums, and frankly, they're the same thing. But Steely Dan officially came out with a new album in 2000. I hadn't listened to it from beginning to end for a while. And goodness, what a joy Two Against Nature was. Just about every cut is perfect. And I was really struck by hearing again after a long time, what a shame about me. This is an art song on the level practically of Ravel. Get a load of the chorus in particular. Listen to this. Maybe listen twice. Steely Dan are odd. But this is a very good piece of work. I was grinding through my day Stacking cut out Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another one. You have Captain Tushin, and he gets up and he buttons his greatcoat. Well, he buttons his greatcoat, and then what P and V have him doing is smoothing himself out. Tushin buttoning his greatcoat and smoothing himself out. Now, I know what that means. I get it. I suppose I've smoothed myself out now and then, but isn't it a little peculiar to have him smoothing himself out, touching all over himself? It's a little, little pat. Like from Saturday Night Live, remember how Julia Sweeney's Pat used to always be kind of fondling 
him, herself. That's a little weird. He buttoning his greatcoat and smoothing himself out. It's just not idiomatic. And you could say that, well, it's not supposed to sound like English. It's supposed to sound like Russian in English. But here, I would venture that it doesn't quite. It's just by my reasoning, a little bit awkward. Now, I think I know what's going on, and it's actually, it's about self in a different way. It's that there's a reflexive ending on the verb that Tolstoy uses. He uses apravyayas, and just at the end, it's just a, that is the self. And so, you're going to shave yourself, you would have that ending. You're going to hurt yourself, you're going to have that ending. And then, here, if you're going to straighten yourself out, well, you have that ending, the soot, because it's something that you're doing to yourself. Okay. But, the thing is, in Romance languages, Germanic languages, and Slavic languages, that reflexive, that selfness, where you're talking about doing something to yourself, is used in a great many cases in ways that are no longer literal that do not need to be indicated, for example, in English. And you hear this more than you might think. And so, for example, Spanish. You know, vamanos, let's go. Well, even if you only know five minutes of Spanish, you know that we go is vamos. So what's the nos? You're going to go us. We're going to go upon ourselves or something. Why is it that? Or you can listen more closely to people. Me voy, I'm leaving. I'm going myself? You can't translate it. The reflexive has basically just kind of evolved into indicating that what you're doing has more to do with you than kicking a ball. And so, let's go ourselves. Another one in Spanish. Oh, goodness, I forgot. I forgot it. Se me olvidó. And so, se olvidó. It forgot itself to me, is the way you have to put it. You want to say, ah, yo olvidé. And you sound like a jackass. No, se me olvidó. Say, it's just it's overused. French has a cute one, actually. The verb for to see is voir. I see, je vois. Okay, she sees, elle voit. But if you want to say something like, huh, I can tell, or hmm, it shows. Somebody says, I'm having a really bad day. You say, huh, I can tell. The way you say that is, ça se voit. And that means that sees itself. If, no, it doesn't mean that, but that is what the idiom is, and you just kind of have to know. It's not, it sees itself. I would hate to see a translation from, you know, Balzac or something where somebody says, and it ends up being translated as, yes, it sees itself upon you, that you are not in a good humor, because it means it shows, I can tell. And Germanic languages are like this, too. German is full of this sort of thing. English is odd in this way. We only have a few of these, and so behave yourself. Well, notice you can also say behave, because the question is, you know, what else are you going to behave if not yourself? I do not wish to perjure myself. Okay, well, you certainly don't, but wouldn't it be just as good to say perjure? You know, we'd know what it meant. What do you mean perjure yourself? Are you going to go perjure somebody else? It's, it's just, it's, it's not necessary. Or, you know, to repeat yourself, same thing. We only have a few. Those are remnants, random remnants of a time when, in English, you remembered yourself, you got angered yourself, and so on. All of that is what certain subgroups of Indo-European very regularly do. The Vikings beat that out of us. The Vikings came, they shaved away a lot of what makes English hard, and as a result, here we are with our, frankly, cleaner version of an Indo-European language where we're not using the reflexive in ways that don't make any sense. But what this means is that if somebody, 
kind of puts themselves together, neatens themselves in Russian. You don't necessarily need to have a selfie thing in the translation. Buttoning his greatcoat and smoothing himself out. Almost fussy, and maybe I'm missing something about the culture of the time, but really the way other translations have it is that he buttoned his greatcoat and pulled it straight and left, which actually gives a nice theatrical snap. You button, 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 and then you give a couple of, back to the yanking, you give a couple of yanks down, and then you go. And it doesn't have to be that you yanked yourself. I did not mean to go into this meaning, but I'm stuck with it. It doesn't mean he's touching all over himself. He just kind of did a snap and left. And so, what we've learned about is what some people have called the inherent reflexive. That's an aspect especially of being a European language. You find it in some other languages around the world. I once noticed it in, um, I think it was the Native American language Mutsum. Some people asked me what something was, and it looked very much like inherent reflexive to me. But it's definitely a European language fetish, and it can make translation sometimes a bit of a challenge. You know, you, for a nominal fee, and it really is a nominal fee, can have a better experience. And it's not always easy to have a better experience, especially these days. So, for example, if you get Slate Plus, no ads. You can listen to any Slate podcast without the commercials. And then, if you get Slate Plus, you get more show, because you get a little tag at the end of our shows that you can't hear unless you have Slate Plus. So, for Lexicon Valley, you'll get some extra bit of stuff. And only you will hear it. It'll be your private experience, you and everybody else who has Slate Plus. And it gets better, especially lately, because you can have Slate Plus now under a special deal for just a dollar for the first month. Now, of course, after that, it's more than a dollar. But you get Slate Plus. You can try it out and see what a luscious experience it is for just a dollar. And you'll get extra episodes, whole episodes of Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. So, Try Slate Plus out. It will help Slate out at a time when we all need help, and you'll have a better experience. No commercials and more show. What could be better? Maybe not with this show, but with all of Slate's other podcasts. Listen to this deliciously weird music. This is music as liquor. Listen to this. that is? It's from a cartoon. That's the opening music of an ordinary seven-minute Hollywood cartoon. The thing is, though, it's not ordinary. This is Gerald McBoing-Boing in the 50s from the UPA studio who made, I think, the very best short cartoons ever made in the world, other than Looney Tunes. These are all such wonderful pieces of art that happened at a certain period of time. Certain currents all came together. There was a DVD set called, unfortunately, Jolly Frolics is what these things were commercially called, which makes them sound kind of stupid. But the Jolly Frolics 4 DVD set collects all of these, especially the the artists among you. I highly recommend snapping up the remainders of that set because these cartoons are very special. And it includes, for the musical among you, incredible modern classical music scores. You want to listen to a little bit more of Gerald McBoing Boing, which was also just very cute? Here's what happens after that opening fanfare. This is the story of Gerald McCloy and the strange thing that happened to that little boy. 
They say it all started when Gerald was two. That's the age kids start talking. At least most of them do. Well, when he started talking, you know what he said? He didn't talk words. He went... Instead. Anyway, June Thomas, you know that that was for you. But it's sincere because I absolutely adore this cartoon. There is one more thing. You have these men, and they're pulling some boot from each other. And what one of them says is, what a quick fingers. I don't know, but that doesn't sound to me like what these particular guys would say to each other. I can only imagine that in the voice of Paul Lind. Like, what a quick fingers. It isn't something someone would say. And so, you know, I took a look. What did Tolstoy have for quickie fingers? And it's lovok. Lovok is this adjective that means that you're, you're nimble, you're dexterous, maybe a tiny bit snatchy. Now, PNV knew that we just don't have any adjective that's quite going to get it. Nobody's going to say how nimble you are, or you're quite dexterous, or something like that. If you think about it, it's really hard to get away from adjectives like that. So they make up a noun, a title, this quick fingers, and the idea is to get what lovok means by using the qualities of it in something that is short like an adjective. I get where they're going here, but even with the noun, it's a tough one. You know, snatchety one or, you know, dexterous one. It's, it's a hard one. Lovok is something that carves out a certain little space in Russian that English doesn't have a single term for, but What this gets into is that there's some people who would say that, well, this means that to be Russian is to be more sensitive to this particular concept of being a lovok and what that means than it is in other languages. One should be careful because languages can convey the same thing just with very different strategies. And so, for example, even just adjective and noun, there's a language called borrow. And in borrow, they have a verb, goblo. And goblo means to be fat like a baby. Now, it would be very easy to look at that verb and say, they have a verb, and it means to be fat like a baby. And you think, well, the borrow are really into babies and how they be like to be fat to be like, or something like that. Okay. But, you know, we have the same thing. It's just that we use a noun. We say baby fat, and we mean the same thing. We feel the same thing. It's just a different part of speech, so to say. Well, it can go further than that. So, for example, think about the colloquial American English sense of hovering. You see people at a party and one member of a couple never seems to quite leave the other one's side. and You can tell they're kind of guarding their property. That, for a certain amount of time, has been called hovering. Now, you can assume that there is an expression like that in most, if not all languages, depending on the situation. But there might not be a verb that they use. They might not say that somebody was something-ing. One way they might do it is it might be a noun. It might be that the person is a never-gone, or the person is acting like a cowbird or something. Or it might be an adjective. You might go further from what it is. There might be, in some language, an adjective that we would translate as, like, clingsome, or to be a little more creative, lycra-like, or something like that. Or it could be that when we are translating something like lovok, 
which is that you're nimble, you're dexterous, and that's why you're good at pulling some boot from another person. Maybe you just have to really think about what a person would say in English apart from there being a particular word. Maybe it's just not going to sound like the Russian. And so, for example, I would translate this as, and maybe get smacked on the back of the head, if somebody asked me to translate War and Peace and nobody will, and I don't want them to, it would be something like, just grab it, huh? Just snatch it, huh? Yeah, that sort of thing. That's what he's saying. I don't think that in any sense is he saying, oh, what a quick fingers. That just doesn't work in English. You've got to go around to what that person would say in this random conglomeration of words and syntax and meanings. And, you know, if I sound a little bit negative here, and I know I'm out of my lane, I want to give you just an example of a translation from Russian that I thought was really fantastic. I was um, watching a production of The Cherry Orchard way back in the 90s. And at one point, you have Lyubov, lovey, you could call her, talking to the sort of dreamy-eyed student Trofimov. And she says, you know, you're not above love, you're just... And in Russian, what Chekhov has is nidotyopa. Nidotyopa. That is a really tough word to translate. It means somebody who is roughly loser-ish. The nida means not up to. Tyopa doesn't mean anything, but the word means that you're, you're a little insufficient. You haven't quite gotten there. It's kind of funny, like, you know, banana and potato are in English. Really, I find that the closest thing to it would be schlemiel in Yiddish, but that might not be considered completely an English word. It's just this weird little word that means you're not quite up to snuff, you little darling. And so Lubov would say this with a smile, but there's just no noun. And I actually saw a translator a few years ago who was working on a translation of Cherry Orchard, and they actually mentioned, of all things, how hard Nita Tiopa is, and they said that they were still working on figuring out what it would be. But Paul Schmidt, in the translation I saw back in the 90s in San Francisco, hit it perfectly. What he came up with was, you're not above love, you just haven't gotten down to it. Not only did it get a big laugh, but it really was the perfect thing to do. Because it implies that you aren't quite adequate, you're not quite there yet, but because this is about, well, you haven't been brave enough to try to get physically involved with someone, it might even mean kind of, well, you're still a virgin, if I may. Well, you get that with the, you haven't gotten down to it. And then on top of that, you have not above, but getting down, which is actually a little better than the Russian. Really, really good job of conveying nidotyopa, but you have to come up with a whole expression. You can't think, what's the word? Or I'm going to use some one word because that'll have the rhythm of the Russian. The, the rhythm of the Russian has to get lost here if you're going to have a moment of art. I thought, goodness, that is translation. And I should say that I am not trying to imply that my command of Russian is such that I have such a sense of every little resonance of some word like Nidotyopa as I'm implying. And Oksana, you know very well that I am not trying to imply any such thing. And you also know how deeply thankful I am to you. To close this out, I want to play something that I've always just enjoyed. This is Cherry Pie's 
ought to be you. Because, you know, Cherry Orchard, get it? Well, this is Cherry Pies ought to be you. This is a Cole Porter song originally from Out of This World, a failed show of 1950. It's a duet. This is a British rendition that was done later in the 50s in a show called Aladdin. And yeah, there's a kitschy Chinese aspect to this that I hope you can let by given the nature of the era. What I like about this clip is that these two people really sound like they're in love and they really sound like they want to have sex. This is Bob Monkhouse and Doretta Morrow, the under-recorded Doretta Morrow, who left us too early, one of the best sopranos of the 50s. And I am quite sure for various reasons that these two people were definitely not going to have sex in real life. But boy, did they show it here. Listen to this. It's very sweet. Cherry pies ought to be you. Autumn skies ought to be you. The big Miss Universe prize ought to be you. Romeo in disguise ought to be you. Columbine ought to be you. Sparkling wine ought to be you. Everything fair and fine ought to be you. Every Confucius line ought to be you. You are so enticing I'm starting to shake. You are just the icing. Put on my cane To continue Heaven's blue Ought to be Heaven too Ought to be Everything super do Ought to be French perfumes Ought to be Hot lacoons Ought to be Early Egyptian tombs Ought to be Heavenly insect fumes Ought to be Coats of mink They ought to be Hunting pink Ought to be Orange pico to drink Ought to be you. Every kind thought I think ought to be you. When your Chinese favor is all up to me. You're the Chinese flavor in my cup of tea. To continue stately homes ought to be you. Before I go, I want to share a mistake that I made. Of sorts, of course. Remember I'm sounding off a couple of shows ago about how expatiate isn't a word? Well, of course, you know, like 10 minutes after I recorded that show, I am reading through Gotham, the majestic book about New York written by Edwin Burroughs and Mike Wallace. And it, too, is 1,200 pages long. And thank God it isn't translated from Russian. But I was reading a part of it. And of course, there has to be this blind Baptist preacher. Now, it's in the late 1700s, and so it's not like this is something somebody said in the New Yorker last week. It's the late 1700s, but wouldn't you know, this is what somebody said about this blind Baptist preacher. Instead of expatiating upon the horrid and awful condition of mankind in consequence of the lapse of Adam and his wife, he exhorted his hearers to spend the day joyfully in innocent festivity and to render themselves as happy as possible. And, you know, wouldn't you know that the person also was saying this in what is now pretty much my neighborhood? They said this in Newtown. That's what became the part of Queens that I actually reside in. It's like somebody is trying to rub it in my face. Somebody did say expatiate, and they said it near probably what is now the water main that you use. Anyway, that happened, and what I'm really going to go out on is not cherry pies, but this is Traffic. This is from the John Barleycorn album. This is the first cut in it, Glad. I've never gotten to hear this as much as I wanted to. When there was the LP of it, I couldn't afford it. Somebody made me a cassette recording from their own LP of it. For some reason, I lost it. Then it went out of fashion. I've never gotten enough. And so, the wonderful jam of Glad. 
You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. By the way, Anna Nyberg, I can do Swedish tones. Listen, anden, anden. See, anden, anden. Isn't that duck and spirit? I just wanted to do that. Anyway, Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am John McWhorter. <laughs>